0: <laughs> it is great to be here. It is, uh, I look around and I know quite a few people. Yes? Quick Do you mind if I record your, uh, sure, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> now, now I feel the pressure to say something important. <laughs> well, I very much. Echo the feelings that George expressed in terms of the honor and the uh, just the joy of the years that we've spent together, and delight in, in, in our friendship. And uh, so pleased that uh, that uh, this latter season of our life is uh, that we're still going. <laughs> I'm glad to be anywhere now. So uh, my. Um, Just tell you a little bit about my career path. uh, In uh, in college, I was an English literature major, which prepared me to run software engineering groups for 25 years, (laughs) which then prepared me to be a pastor. (laughs) It's not that I don't plan; it's just that none of my plans ever work. (laughs) There is a And you'll see that as I continue on. Throughout <laughs> <this>. <laughs> Henry Blackaby's book *Experiencing God* had really major impact on me, and it, it was really a delayed impact. You know, you can summarize his book in two sentences: you know, don't make plans and ask God to bless them; uh, find out what God's doing and join Him. And uh, yeah, and I, I understood that when I first read his book. I think it's Early 90s, but as I look back at my life, I I really am such a compulsive planner that uh, the planning always took place first. And it was interesting just recently; the Lord took me back to that that moment, and I uh, spent I picked about 40 pastors and church leaders in the city. And I re- went around to them and I asked them a fairly simple question: uh, What do you see God doing in Austin? And uh, I was a bit surprised at the response because none of them had a ready answer. And these these are, I, I didn't go to pick out pick out unqualified people. These are very qualified people. And all of them eventually came up with very good answers. But it wasn't in the forefront of their thinking. I know that if I'd have asked them, what do you see the enemy doing? I'd have got a list in a hurry. And one of the things that that really pressed me with is that we need to have eyes to see God at work around us. And we have this tendency to see the negative things we have a tendency to be overwhelmed by the negative things and we don't we don't see what God is doing and, and the, the important part of that question was what do you see God doing in our city not in your church all of them could have come up with pretty quickly you know this is what God's doing in our church but cities is a large part of of my focus Seasons of my life kind of have gone in decades, and I'm not going to cover all seven of them, <laughs> but just the last three. Uh, for me, the 80s, a focus on Austin, a focus on Hope Chapel, a focus on Turkey and the Antioch Network. The 1990s was a time of transition from Austin to Turkey and then back to Austin. And then the 2000s have been a time of convergence for me, focusing almost exclusively on Austin. Hope Chapel started as a Bible study in 1977. We were a church before we ever called ourselves a church. In other words, the things that happen in real church happen among 13 people in that Romans Bible study. We have two of the original members sitting back there on the back row. uh, And the Lord really deeply fashioned friendships and relationships with us that have gone, that have been very enduring. And at that time I was a vice president of a little software company that was subsequently acquired by Intel. And uh, 1981, Uh, I think it was. Yeah, we uh, thank you, Jack. (laughs) Uh, I resigned from my role at Intel that acquired the company. Resigned my role with Intel to become a full-time pastor. And I felt we felt illegit. I felt illegitimate as a church. First of all, we weren't sponsored by anybody else. Uh, No one uh, in the city. Knew that we had any credentials, we might as we could have been the Moonies for all anybody knew, and so I, on a quest for legitimacy, I began to call each week a different pastor, and I'd ask that pastor, I'd tell him, I'm I'm a new pastor in town. I'd like to go to lunch with you. Would you be willing to do that? Back then, people actually answered their telephones when you called them, and uh, so as this progressed almost every time every week I'd have a pastor to meet with and I was going across denominational boundaries and what I was trying to do for the most part was to prove to them that uh, we were legitimate which isn't the most noble of, of motives but what I soon began to discover was that some of them wanted my friendship as much as I wanted their approval now, it's not that my friendship is such a high-caliber thing. It's that there's a unique in world that pastors live in. Uh, this is a generalization about pastors. It's a general, like any other generalization, there are obviously tons of exceptions. Most pastors are, for the most part, introverts, not extreme introverts. Uh, if they were extreme, that they probably wouldn't make it. But most of them, I think there's something about the pastoral calling that to some extent selects that kind of person, the kind of person who is, who is comfortable with uh, getting into the word, is comfortable with wrestling with, with ideas, comfortable with the idea of being a teacher who teaches people. You know, it, you give an introvert a, micro- a microphone and he's in control, you know, and that's... And that's you know, that. That's provides that differentiation where that introvert can thrive. Most pastors are very lonely. They are surrounded by people, all of whom it seems want a piece of them. And it's you know, it's kind of like it's kind of like people are everywhere, but there's not a safe place where I can be myself. There's not a safe place where where I don't have to worry about. This conversation and I can be free to tell the truth about myself and I can be free to not worry about the consequences and so in that process I you know these friendships begin to form and to a large extent that describes me too I'm an introvert Uh, I have all kinds of friends but I grew up kind of with a strong wall that I didn't let very many people cross. And there was a private Dan that not too many people knew. Pretty much the last 30 years of my life have been spent by the Holy Spirit beginning to lower that wall and the vulnerability of who I am beginning to be increasingly be expressed. come back to that a little later. Our interest in Turkey took place in the Perspectives class in 1994, 1984, and uh, this Joshua project took us to Istanbul for three months. And I made a list of the things that I think that we learned there. The first was the challenge of planting churches in Turkey was bigger than Hope Chapel could address. Second one is that it probably would take many different models of the church to effectively express the church in a place like Istanbul. Thirdly, from God's point of view, there's only one church in the city. Fourthly, in order for the church to be effective, it's got to be a church that loves the city. There's a need for cultural contextualization. There's the relational component of evangelism that must be there. And there's a need to use your real vocation as a platform for ministry. I think anybody who's worked cross-culturally has, has, has faced each one of those things one way or the other. For our time in Istanbul, one of the things we did every, well every day, we'd send two people out to do prayer walks about the city and we would, uh, we would find people to talk to who spoke English and we had a series of questions we would ask them and our objective was to develop uh, do an ethnographic study to basically develop a social economic profile of the city to hopefully build a database that could be then used by uh, subsequent mission endeavors but in the process I began to know that city in a very intimate way, in a process I fell in love with that city. One day I realized that I knew Istanbul better than I knew Austin. Because I'd never done that in Austin. I'd never looked at Austin from a global perspective. I'd never looked at it from the perspective that God sees our city. And uh, it changed my life. My, ch- changed my whole concept of the church. You know, Prior to that, uh, this was my unspoken uh, 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 kind of basis of operation. What, you know, what can Austin do to make Hope Chapel into a great church? And after my experience in Istanbul, the Lord flipped that question on me. And it became, what can Hope Chapel do to make Austin into a great city? That's a, that's a pretty radical different way for a church to begin to look at, at the place that they're at. That's part of, the, part of the idea of seeing there only being one church in the city. Now I, the church meets has many different personalities, it meets in many different places, has many different kinds of expressions, but I, don't, I just don't see God looking down at Austin and seeing 800 different little bodies of Christ running around. There is his body that's being expressed in this city. Somewhere along in there, this vision began to be fostered in my heart. And the vision has really driven almost everything I've done since then. The the vision of of seeing a city be truly transformed. Uh, I don't mean by that that it's going to become the ideal place where everything is excellent. It'll be a place where God is truly glorified, and where Christians really understand the the vital connection that holds them together and ties them to the eternal task that God has called them to. Habakkuk, then the Lord answered and said, answered me and said, record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. It hastens towards the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Well, into that scene comes George Miley. There's a perpe- perspective. How many of you, your life was messed up by perspectives course? I, I wanna see. Yeah, that's, uh, I, it really, really does that to people. You know, when I think of George, what, what stands out most to me is the way he treasures Hannah. I, do you feel that's, that's, that same sense? That, I mean, that it's an extraordinary way that, that George treasures Hannah and, 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 and holds her in just a very special place. And of course, it doesn't take a genius to understand that Hannah is a special treasure. But Hannah has another side as well. I wish you were here. Uh, (laughs) I think you know the story. I don't know which one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the one where she had all of her art supplies in the garage. (laughs) And and a cat somehow was able to get into the garage and mess up all her papers. And one day she was out there when the cat was there, she grabbed that cat and you see that little body (laughs) whirling this cat around her head like this. And then wham, into the next yard. (laughs) that that image of Hannah doing something like that, just just very delightful. (laughs) Finally, there, there was George's passion for prayer. You know, I always hated it when George got to pray before me in our <laughs> gatherings. Because there was nothing left to pray for once he'd prayed. Did any of you notice that? His <laughs> prayers are so enveloping. Uh, all, you know. And I'm sitting there thinking, George, I, I can't think of anything else to add to that prayer except amen. And there's just this tremendous passion and love for prayer that you see. A heart that's prepared. Pray in that fashion. 1990s for me was a big transitional time. The original board of directors of of Antioch had uh, had four pastors on it. Uh, four of the best friends that uh, <laughs> so I have a lot of best friends. They certainly are among the best friends. Uh, Bill Thrall. Uh, John Rowell, uh, good heavens, they're my best friends. (laughs) Who? Mike Phillips Phillips, uh, and myself. Uh, I'm one of the best pastors I know too. (laughs) But the interesting thing is that the four of us in the 90s all went through gut-wrenching changes in our relationship to our churches. Uh, I don't don't know if if there's any way that you could could describe this as being a a function of being involved in in ministry or missions or anything like that. Uh, I I can't see the pattern except that for every one of us. Every one of us had a dear, uh, intimate, very passionate relationship with our church and all of us were very relational people in terms of our churches. But it just seemed, for whatever reason, that each one of us went through just some very painful times. What was a lesson to be learned? One of them, for me, and I've seen this happen time and time again, is that chaos precedes change. And I I don't think any change happens without confrontation. And I think that confrontation in its best form is one of the best things that could ever happen to you. And confrontation in its worst form is one of the worst things that could ever happen to you. First of all, we're confronted with the living God. Secondly, we're confronted with His Word. Secondly, we're confronted with the discipleship of the Holy Spirit. Then we're confronted with with, with our fellow believers walking the road of discipleship. Each step along that way is a confrontation. Each step along that way is a time when we are called to be different. And if there's one thing that I've learned is that confrontation is, is something that you must address with a sense of welcoming the possibility of it being a good transformational process. And I think for all four of us who went through that period, it was part of God's fashioning our hearts for what he wanted to do. In 1992, it became increasingly evident to me that my heart was no longer in pastoring the local church. I think I could have stayed there until now. It wasn't a matter of the church not wanting me. It was a fact that my heart had gone beyond the local church. In part, it had gone to Turkey. In part, it had gone to, uh, to the city. And it seemed like the, the, the city and Turkey were the two things that were drawing me in, in two different directions. And that drawing kind of took place throughout the whole 1990s. The 1990s weren't the happiest time in my life in that regard. It was a time of great productivity. But it was also a time when, when it seemed like, Lord, I, I, this isn't the plan that I had. It's not working out the way I thought it should. 1993, at the end, I had a heart attack, had bypass surgery, and you know, I I share, I think I share with all of you the desire to be strong, Uh, particularly to look strong, but during this time, I felt weak and pathetic. Paul speaks of weakness as being the context out of which God's strength is demonstrated. I I kind of learn to interpret that as in the light of I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The fact that I feel weak right now is, is must be some mistake or some way. And I, I need to pretend like I'm not weak. I need to pretend like I'm strong. I need, I need to ignore the fact that I don't feel like I have the capacity to do what is ahead of me. The premise is that we followers of Christ never really have to experience the full weight of weakness. You know, when God visits my life with weakness, I hate it. Have any of you ever ever had that feeling before? I hate this. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when 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 i feel like i'm i'm no longer in control of my life but that's the context in which you truly become vulnerable for your heart to be transformed that's a context in which the pride is replaced by humility that's a place where The heart is softened through the tears that you shed. That's a place where real-life transformation takes place. But don't let anybody tell you it's fun. If it's fun, you, you miss the point. Back during that time, Turkey was a significant priority for my life. I made many trips to Turkey. I took many different pastoral teams from various churches on exploratory trips. I worked with Andy Jackson and Jason in the formation of ITN. Towards the end I made a trip by myself to the various Turkish pastors throughout the country to try to solidify working relationships. Tracy's parents, Mike and Joyce, were in Istanbul and they were a large part of this this idea of of beginning to develop relationships among the Turkish pastors. So we decided to have a meeting in Ephesus. So we brought in, can you imagine having a church council in Ephesus? So we we brought in all all the pastors there and we we had this this church council. And it was wonderful. It was kind of a highlight for me. We had these two charismatic pastors who remain nameless. <laughs> I don't think anybody here would know them. Um, and afterwards, d- during that time, they they were always giving prophetic words to all the various Turkish leaders. And you know, some of them were a bit, bit large. And uh, you know, it was an open meeting where we were supposed to be trying to allow everyone to have an opportunity. But these guys were pushing the limit. And later on, I I took them and uh, made a couple more visits and and it got worse and uh, three of the Turkish pastors pulled me aside and said and this is after my spending almost 10 years of investment in them and said we don't want to work with Antioch Network and uh, you know that wasn't that wasn't the happiest moment in all my life. That, that was a pretty pretty sad moment. Now, I'm not blaming those two pastors <laughs> because the beautiful thing is that in the midst of that thing, God brought Jason. And there was, there was an awesome transition that took place. A season that ended for me and a season that had begun for Jason. And God gave him the favor and the blessing that uh, that uh, I, had, I had worked hard in terms of trying to see it come about. But I, I understand in, in all of that that God's plan was so much bigger than mine because he was looking at a future that was bigger than anything I could look at, anything I could possibly imagine. Throughout the 90s, my roots in Austin went deeper and deeper. During the 1990s, I supported my missions habit by working with local churches here in Austin. I was uh, an evangelist in residence at the St. Matthew's Episcopal Church, if you can imagine that, this Pentecostal kid putting on robes and (laughs) preaching in this large Episcopal Church. Uh, I was also the interim pastor for a year at Christian Church out in in, uh, Marble Falls. And I was trying to say, Lord, What's happening here? What's happening here? And then towards the end of the 90s, we had a meeting over in Phoenix with Gary Kinnaman, Word of Grace. And he and I had talked about this love that both of us have for pastors. So this idea of pastors and covenant began to emerge. Pastors and covenant, the idea, You know, I had been to every kind of uh, Pastors Fellowship, you can imagine. And they weren't worth beans. I mean, it was, you, you'd come together and everybody, it would either be a time where you're sharing stories about how good or bad things are, but there's no deep, lasting relationship, there's no life transference, there's no life transformation that take, took place. And Gary and I said, there's got to be a place where pastors can be real. So we came up with the concept of Pastors and Covenant. The idea is in a covenant group would be limited in size to no more than eight, that it would be would require a high level of commitment in terms of uh, meeting three hours uh, one time a month and meeting at least nine times out of the year. That you couldn't bring guests, you couldn't send an associate, you couldn't promote your programs. You had to just tell about yourself. You had to be real. You had to uncover your heart. You had to be vulnerable. And uh, you know, my, one of my mottos over the years in Austin is that uh, the secret of my success in Austin, and of course success is the joke, is that I've been in one place for 30 years and haven't done anything extra stupid. But there's a lot of weight to that. There's a lot of weight to investing 30 years in a the community. There's a lot of weight to developing 30 years of friendship and 30 years of trust. And, and the, This was the season when it seemed like all of this convergence was beginning to take place. Our pastors and covenant groups exploded. You know, right now we have over 100 senior pastors involved in these groups throughout the city cutting across every almost every evangelical denomination and uh, the groups that I lead, both of them have existed for for over ten years and both of these tr- groups are pastors of large churches, for the most part over 2,000 and you know, there's, th- th- there's something that in, in these groups my, the two groups I lead take place in our living room my wife is usually in the house somewhere else during the times. She says, half the time, it sounds like a bunch of high school kids in there. You know, just everybody joking and joshing and having a lot of fun. Then says, the other half the time, it gets really quiet. Most times when it's really quiet, almost always is accompanied by eyes moistening up and someone is unburdening the pain of some situation that he's going through. All of us are in that group. Are committed that we're we're not going to do therapy. We're not going to try to fix anybody. We're just going to keep asking questions till we really understand, as much as you want us to understand. And then we'll gather around and pray for you. You know, some of the best counseling that ever takes place happens when you pray for somebody. When you pray for somebody, that's the Holy Spirit to the party. That's when you give the Holy Spirit a chance to talk. Because when you pray for someone, then, then there is that, that, that enlightenment, the, the illumination, that you could never plan for, that you could never program for. And as we gather around whichever pastor it is, you can, you can just listen to wisdom. You can listen to, to counsel. You can just listen to instruction from the Holy Spirit. Now These are all almost none of these guys. I think it was two or three charismatics and 16 guys. And uh, they are full of the Spirit. And the gifts of the Spirit flow gloriously in their prayers. They just don't know it. (laughs) There's there's, there's a sense in which they're not quite aware of how powerful the Holy Spirit is using them. The uh, PIC. PIC has resulted, grown into another organization called ABBA. ABBA stands for Austin Bridge Builders Alliance. And this is part of the vision of seeing God begin to draw the church and the city together. ABBA has existed now for well, about eight years. And we have on staff, uh, guys that work almost exclusively with ministries in the city and with city government we have uh, others on the staff that uh, basically work with uh, the various ways that we draw communication create communication between the churches and the city and I bring the pastors to the table through pick and and, uh, and in this process've we've, uh, we've increasingly begun to see cooperation begin to emerge last Last November, we had an event called In the City for the City. It was held at uh, one of the state buildings down at the Capitol, IMAX theater type place. We had every ministry in the city that we could contact, over 130 ministries with their presentations there. And then we made presentations to four of the ministries that, that really stood out. So we begin to see, first of all, walls begin to drop between denominations. The pick groups have done that marvelously. We've seen walls begin to drop between the church and the parachurch. And there's big walls between the church and the parachurch. We are seeing in other places, walls begin to drop down in terms of gender and race. We're beginning to see the body of Christ become increasingly become expressed as a holistic expression of what the body of Christ ought to be. So, what are we learning? We're learning, number one, that the challenge is bigger than Hope Chapel could address by itself. We're learning that it would probably take many different models of the church to reach our city. We're learning from God's standpoint there's only one church in the city. We're learning that it must be a church that loves the city. We're learning that there's a need for contextual, uh, uh, cultural contextualization that there's a relational component to evangelism, and that we must use our real vocation as a platform for ministry. If you weren't keeping track, those were the same things we learned in Istanbul. And it's even more true here than it is there. Because here we have churches who think that they're they're culturally distinct, but they're not. They're blurred into the culture. They're, you know, It's like a fish. Culture is a very powerful thing. One of my most, most my favorite politically incorrect question, get ready, <laughs> is what do Mormons, Muslims, and homosexuals have in common? You have, admit, you have to admit that's a pretty politically incorrect question, except that at heart it's not, because the answer is the power of culture. Now each one of those demonstrate to us in radical ways the power of culture in the Islamic society, the power of culture in the sexual society, the power of culture in the Mormon church. They just stand out for us. Well, we, we ourselves are also involved with the power of culture. We're held by the power of culture. And, and we don't see the culture. It's like a fish in, in, in a tank. You know, if, if you tried to describe to that fish what water was, it wouldn't understand it. Because there's no way for that fish to differentiate between where it is and what is around it. And that's the way we are in terms of being enveloped in our culture, where we don't understand the distinctives that ought to make us distinct and different. Andy Crouch has written a book called Making Culture. I highly recommend it to you. His his thesis is that we can't change culture. We've got to make new culture. And I don't think the church is yet fully understanding that. In our efforts to be seeker-sensitive, you know, there's a sense in which we've, and please don't hear me saying this in a harsh way, but there's, there's a sense in which in, in some way we've, we've just tried to blend in further. Now, we have to be, we have to be definitely sensitive and, and, and converse with the culture that we're in. But we've got to understand what makes us distinct. And we've got to build and make new culture. So I've wrestled with the question of how you make new culture. I see very few conversions taking place in America and in Austin through one-on-one interaction between believers sharing their faith with unbelievers. I mean, you don't have to go to Turkey to find that. R- right in your own city, you'll find that. So how is it? How, you know, do we have another evangelism program? Do we try to invent a different form for church? Do we try to develop different models? And my question is, no, we've, we've, got to, we've got to make a new culture. And the more I've wrestled with that, the more convinced that I, I am so we make new culture through prayer and through the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you a story, and I'm closing with this. For my 70th birthday, my son, who lives in Seattle, said, Dad, for your 70th birthday, I want to fly you to San Francisco, I'll meet you there, and I want to spend a week with you driving down the California coast. I went to high school in Monterey, California, so you know that area is very familiar to me. And it truly was one of the most precious gifts that I ever received. But when I landed in San Francisco, the uh, my son was coming in on a different airline, so my terminal was different than his. So I went down to the baggage carousel, and I was standing there watching the carousel go. Standing next to me, he asked me, "Well, what's the point of being very attractive?" Nothing except that I'm old, but not <laughs> uh, the, uh, And as the bags go around, she says, will you be needing any help with your bag? Old? <laughs> look that decrepit. do you like it and she said like to be. And I said, uh, what are you going to do about it? She says, well, I heard there's a good art school. I heard San Diego is a better place. I think I'll go down there. My bag arrived. I pulled my bag off the carousel. And as I turned to go, and I turned back to her, and I said, you know, I'm a pastor. And I said, the most loving thing I could do for you is to pray for you. She said, right here. And I said, yes. I promise you I won't embarrass you. And she said, I said, just keep your eyes open and look at me and I'll keep my eyes open and I'll have a conversation with you. Only I'll be talking to the Lord. And I prayed very I didn't try to make any theological points I just blessed her and asked for God's favor I did ask also that she would know tears are coming down her face She said, my son would have been four years old today. And I realized that I had just tapped into a vast pool of pain. A pain that she had never told me in a long transcontinental flight. It was pain that was the Holy Spirit allowed to emerge from our prayer. I was at a difficult juncture there. You know, I, I thought momentarily, you know, do I, do I stay and try to close the sale here? And I sensed, no, I shouldn't. And I said, well, I'll continue to pray for you. And in turn, it was a very crowded a situation just wouldn't have, wouldn't have allowed for what would take place. And for three, three or four weeks, I felt guilty about it. And then the Holy Spirit spoke to me once and said, do you think you're the only arrow I got in my quiver? You, know, <laughs> you, you did what you were supposed to do there. But, but I want to make a point that's deeper than that. I know I'm in and out on this thing. And in Jack Hayford's services, he always had... Um, People form prayer circles, and he would always do it in a very gracious way. You know, we just want you to stand and form groups of no more than four. Want you to pray for each other. Uh, Just share what needs you have, and 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 uh, if you're new, uh, group and listen. Discipling the congregation to be active in praying for people that they didn't even know. Now, when we talk about prayer, there's a tendency. Prayer is vast. Prayer, you know, it's um, Muslims pray, Buddhists pray, Hindus pray, Jews pray, we pray. So, in one sense, it's neutral. But in a sense, when you when you invoke the name of the, Holy, the name of Jesus in your prayer. It becomes very, can I kick this off?